Amen. Welcome. Thank you for being here this morning. Um, we are in week two of looking at the book of Job. Journeying through Job, I'm going to mention kind of where we're going to be in just a minute as far as um, the next several weeks. I mentioned it last week, but just want to keep that in front of you. So Job is a heavy book. It's, it's all about suffering. It's about trials, and it's, and it's really about our response to those things. And so I know there are people in this room who are in the midst of difficult times that have gone through difficult times. And quite honestly, if you say, I don't know if I'm, if that's me. I don't know if that categorizes me. I can tell you that it, it will be, that there will be difficult circumstances just from being a human being on this earth uh, that you're going to go through some circumstances that you're going to throw your hands up and have nothing to give and nothing to offer, and you're going to cry out to God. Uh, I was just actually just in the back of the artist that I've been talking about, Chris Coley, who did a lot of the artwork that we've kind of been uh, looking at Job and um, the, the poem that I'll mention in a second, but he, he also did one on, on Jonah. And there's this image that he, that he, that he drew, that, and I don't have the image, maybe I'll try to get it up here next week, but it's this image of, of Jonah and whether he's in the, in the belly of the whale or what, I don't know, but, but he's praying. And while he's praying, he's got one hand you know, on a typical prayer, but he's also got his other hand just clenched in a fist. Um, and just this image of, I, I'm mad at you, God, and I don't understand why you are doing the things you're doing. I don't understand why I'm going through the things that you have me going through. And that's Job, and that's Job's heart. That's Job as he cries out. And so this week, the second week of, of uh, looking at the book of Job, we're going to be in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10, just 10 verses. But it's, shall we accept good and not trouble? That's exactly what Job says. And so again, just as a reminder or kind of what, this is a, a poem that uh, John Piper, Pastor John Piper wrote. He's a uh, pastor at Bethlehem Baptist Church, downtown Minneapolis, and and he wrote this poem about Job, and, and I'm actually going to be reading uh, quite a big, not quite a big chunk, but a chunk of it this morning, and, and just kind of hearing this artistic view of really what's going on within Job's heart and mind and his relationship with his wife, specifically today. And then the artwork, though, is by a friend of mine, Chris Coley, and, and so I uh, have permission to, to use his stuff, and, and so I'm, I'm excited to be able to just kind of highlight some of those things. And Okay, so here's where we're going. Last week, we looked at kind of the introduction. Who is Job? What happens to Job? Which I'll, I'll mention again in a second. And we're really just going to be spending six weeks in this book, but there are going to be questions that are going to pop up in your mind that I want to make sure that, that we answer at the end. So when we get done over those six weeks of looking at Job, we're going to look at who is, who is Satan? Angels and demons, what, what's going on here? And I want to be able to dig into that. Then we have Easter, and then after Easter, we're going to be starting off with um, how can God be good if there's evil in the world? That there is a problem of evil, that, that why does sin exist? Why does evil exist? Why does suffering happen if God is good? Why does any of this happen? And then the third week um, after this, after, after we finish, is how do I help those who are suffering? And, and so sometime in there right after, during one of these weeks, we'll, we'll, we'll actually show that uh, animated film with uh, uh, Dr. Piper reading the poem. It really is amazing. I was um, listening to it uh, this, this week. I was in my office in Minneapolis, and, and I was working on it, and I was just weeping. I mean, I was just sitting there listening to it as I'm, as I'm working on the sermon. I'm just weeping. And uh, I was like, man, I really hope nobody walks in on me right now. Just, man, just crying in my office. What's the big deal? Uh, last time that happened, I was listening to a song that, um, oh, what's his name? The comedian wrote about Chris Farley. Oh, who's the, who's uh, Adam Sandler? Adam Sandler wrote a song about Chris Farley. And I was like, if somebody walks in right now and is like, why are you crying? 
Just be like, thank you, Buckers, Farley. Um, that didn't happen. Nobody walked in, so we're okay. But all right, here, here, here's what we said last week, and, and this is going to be true of the whole book. Does Job worship God out of genuine love or because of God's blessing? That because of God's hand and, and, the, and the language that, that Satan uses about Job, that this hedge of protection, that you've, you've protected him, you've, everything he does flourishes. Of course he's going to love you. And so we're going to get an insight. Does Job worship God because he actually loves God with or without the things and the blessing and the family, or does he worship God only because of that? And that's really what it is, and we have to ask ourselves that question. Do I worship God out of genuine love for who God is, or is it simply because of his blessing in my life? So last week, just to quickly recap, because we're really just kind of picking up or starting with point four, and I apologize, I don't have a handout uh, for you this morning. Um, sickness kind of ripped through our family, and, and it just got a, little, got a little crazy this week. Everyone's healthy, and we're all good now. Uh, you can shake my hand, I promise. Uh, we're all good. Uh, but anyway, so last week, looking at Job the man, who was Job um, as a father, that he would go and he would sacrifice 10 sheep for his children every single day, that they would have these feasts just in case there might be this slight chance that they might in their own heart curse God. And he does this out of love for his family, out of his love for his God. But then we're introduced into this heavenly courtroom scene where, where God is there and the angels are, are coming and going and they're getting their orders and Satan, this intruder, shows up. And he says, oh, no, I've, I've been going around looking around the earth for, for somebody to ruin. And God brings up, Yahweh brings up, have you considered my servant Job? There's no one like him. There's no one upright like him. And, and, then, and then Satan says, okay, well, you're doing, what are you doing this for? He only does this because of the blessing. Remove it all. Let me destroy everything. And that's exactly what Satan does. And so the third point last week was looking at Job's suffering. He loses his wealth that he was by far one of the wealthiest men in the region. And he loses his 10 children. Um, I'm a new parent-ish. Uh, my son just had his uh, third birthday recently. We celebrated his birthday party yesterday. I'm telling you, I, I thought I understood the book of Job. I thought I understood uh, Isaac being sacrificed with Abraham or, or, or you know, the, the, the trial there. And I'm telling you, the Bible has come so much more to life to me after having children. <laughs> and I can't hardly read it anymore. And I can't hardly read it as a father uh, even as uh, trying to even begin to understand what God the Father and how he loves us enough to give his own son for us. Um, that's what led me to Christ. I'll actually tell you that story real quick. I was not in, it's not in the notes. It's a free one. Um, my dad was a pastor in a little, little Baptist church in, in Bloomington, Illinois. And, and I may have shared this before, but he, um, when, when you're a pastor's kid and, you, and your, your dad uses your name as an illustration, that's when you actually listen. Because you're just, just dad, okay, dad, you say the same thing every week. Uh, whatever, you say the same stories. But when, you, when he uses you and he names you, it's like, oh, he's talking about me. What's going on? What's, what's he about to say? And he gave this analogy uh, that, if, that if some terrorist or something were to happen when somebody threw a grenade or a bomb into the sanctuary... He said, my first response would be to go and grab my son and we'd be out the window faster than anybody else. And he said, but that's not what God does. God actually loves us so much that he puts his son on that grenade to save the rest of us, right? And then, and then at that, as a child, that just clicked. Like, wow, God loves me so much. And now as a father, oh man, this is heavy. And it's gonna be heavy today for everybody, whether you're a parent or not. 
So we're introduced now into this heavenly courtroom, part two. And it's going to be very similar to the first one. So this is Job chapter two, starting in verse one. On another, on another day, the angels came to present themselves before Yahweh, and Satan also came with them to present himself before him. And Yahweh said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered Yahweh from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And then Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So looking back, the first heavenly courtroom scene, it's going to sound exactly the same, except instead of another day, it's going to be one day. One day the angels came to present themselves before Yahweh and Satan also with them. And Yahweh said to Satan, where have you come from? And Satan answered Yahweh from roaming throughout the earth, going back and forth on it. And Yahweh said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. So that's exactly what is just said again. So Satan now has destroyed everything that Job owns. He has destroyed his 10 children in a, in a calamity, in, in, a, in a whirlwind, in a, in a tornado, and destroys his children. And now we're, we're getting back to this heavenly courtroom. And remember, Job is not privy to this information, that all of this scene is happening. And Job is, meanwhile, left on earth weeping and, and, and suffering and mourning, completely unaware of what's happening. Completely unaware that, they're, uh, that God is saying, Job will worship me with or without my stuff and my blessing. But Satan's not finished. So then he says, and Yahweh said to Satan, again, hey, you, you just took everything from him. Have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on the earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. And he still maintains his integrity. Though you enticed me against him to ruin him without any reason. Right? He, even with losing all of this stuff, he still maintains his integrity. And Satan's response, skin for skin. Satan replied, I, I tried to look that up to see if there's a deeper meaning for that. But it's really just what he explained. It's not really a phrase that we would maybe use, at least translated into English. It's nothing really in the Hebrew either, but Satan says, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life, but now stretch out your hand and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And again, there's that Hebrew literature of poetry of, of before it was just in case my children curse you in their hearts. Job or Satan now is saying, he will. He will emphatically curse you to your face. And Yahweh said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands, but you must spare his life. Again here, Yahweh, the creator, God, is in complete control of this situation. At any point, he could have said, consider my servant Job. And then he says, well, I'm going to destroy everything. And God could have said, no. He allows Satan to go through with this, and again, the same exact situation comes up. Skin for skin, I'm going I'm to now attack him personally and his, his body. And so we used this phrase last week, and I'll use it again, that, that suffering, this thing that's happening to Job, is clearly allowed by God, but caused by Satan. 
that in this scene, God gives Satan just a little bit more leash, and that's it. You can go so far, period. And he stops him, spare his life. And so then we're introduced to the actual physical suffering that we see from Job. And last week, looking at losing his wealth, losing his 10 children, and now we see this physical suffering. So in verse seven, so Satan went out from the presence of Yahweh and afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the crown of his head. And as I was able to do a little bit more digging and looking at um, more specifically what this is, there wasn't really a, a name or, or disease that people could kind of figure out what this is, but here are the, the descriptions that we get from Job. That there's painful itching, disfiguration, Sores that scab over, crack, and ooze. Yeah, thanks for that description, Job. Sores infected with worms. This is pretty bad. I've been sick in my day. I've never had worms living in my body. Fever with chills, shriveling of the skin, eyes swollen from weeping, diarrhea, sleeplessness and delirium, choking, bad breath. He says in 1917, like, my wife can't stand my breath, right? And that's... I just call that Tuesday, I guess, but that's not true. <laughs> Emaciation and excruciating pain throughout his body. Or this is, this is bad. And I, I mean, I, I've been through physical pain. I've, I've gone through several, several, two lung surgeries. I only have two lungs. It, I've been through pain, but, but all of this, of, of this idea of just, I just want to die. I just, I just want this to end. And that's what Job is going to be doing. And we're going to see that next week, that he would be better if he had never been born. And so the end of that, verse 8, and then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And there was a couple different things. That is he cutting himself to just uh, take away his, the mental capacity of the pain that he's in, and he's doing that, or is he using that most likely that he's using these broken pieces of pottery to, to break the larger boils to relieve some of the suffering, right? How painful that that must have been that he's going through and sat among the ashes that outside of every city back then there would have been kind of a, a garbage heap, a garbage dump, and, and it would have been on fire and, and it just would have been burning. Uh, and he would have gone in, in exile away from the people, away from the city. Anyone who had, anybody who had any kind of skin disease or anything were, were immediately exiled from the community because they didn't want it to, to spread or transmit other diseases. And even though they didn't really understand germs, obviously the way that we do now, and he's out there alone, sitting in these ashes and, and rubbing the ashes into his own flesh to maybe, maybe just get some relief from his suffering. But even in the midst of this, and imagine what this man's gone through, that he lost all of it, all of his finances, all of his wealth, his prestige. He lost it in a moment. That one servant comes up and says, we, the Sabaeans attacked us, we lost all the sheep. Lost, excuse me, lost all the cattle and everything that we own and, and I'm the only one to, that was saved. And then the second one, while that one's still speaking, comes up and says, fire from, from heaven or hell, I do not know, but it came and it took all the sheep, they were burned up and I'm the only one to be saved. And the next one comes up and he says, Job, uh, the Chaldeans came, they took all the camels. And while he's still speaking, the next one comes up and he says, master, a wind came from the east 
and it crushed your children. That has already happened, that he's lost everything. And now he's going through this physical suffering with no relief whatsoever. And yet I think his greatest suffering is about to happen. That I think as a man, as a husband, as a dad, I think this would be the worst. But his wife said to him, are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. It's the same language that Yahweh uses. He still maintains his integrity. That his wife now is coming and saying, do you, do you still hold on to your integrity? Are you still worshiping this Yahweh, Job? Look at you. And I think I can imagine there was some part of her in her love for her husband to say, I can't stand to see you suffer like this. I would rather you curse this God and just die. Just end your suffering, end the misery. Dr. Piper says this in his poem. That day was like a hundred years. At dusk, his wife returned and she was brisk and cool. Do you still cling to God? She asked and saw his wordless nod. I think you are a fool. How much from him will you endure till such a love from this God, the great, is seen to be a form of hate? Here's my advice for you to try. Curse God tonight and die. And I will follow soon. A widow robbed of everything. And Dinah sobbed. And tears ran down Job's horrid face. And he pulled himself up from his place by some power of grace. He stood beside his wife and said, I would no doubt in your place feel the same. But wife, I cannot curse the name that never treated me unfair. And just this day has answered prayer. And she says, what prayer? What did you bid him do that I should bear this pain, not you? I understand it's just an artistic rendition of what's happening. But knowing how much Job loves his family, how he would sacrifice them just in case they might in their heart curse God. And now his wife, the person that he is closest to that loves more than anything in the world says, just curse God and die. I'm sure that at that altar as he's praying that he would say, I can take this pain. I can take suffering, but do not touch my wife. And then her response that you would just curse God and die. Job replies then to his wife, you are talking like a foolish woman. And the whole idea of, of a fool, the psalmist says that the fool says in his heart there is no God. That you are telling me to go directly against everything I know is real and true and good about our God, about our creator, you're talking like a foolish one, someone who rejects God, that there is no God. You are abandoning God and you play the fool. How hard that would have been for Job. And then he says this, shall we accept good from God 
and not trouble. In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. That even if we don't see it, even if we don't understand it, if we can begin to comprehend the suffering that we're going through, there is this profound mystery that God still maintains his goodness. And we're going to look more at that in a couple weeks after Easter. But how is that possible? This juxtaposition of there is evil and suffering, and yet God is good? Yes, because of Jesus. Because he gave his son to us that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, that he died for me. Again, going back to that poem, Dr. Piper says this, Dinah, do not speak like those who cannot see because they close their eyes and they say there is no God or fault him when he plies the rod it is no sin to say, my love, that bliss and pain come from above. And if we do not understand some dreadful stroke from his left hand, then we must wait and trust and see. Oh, Dinah, would you wait with me? I'll try, she said. I didn't mean that you should die. I'm more unclean than you with all your sores. Is there some evidence that God could care for such as me? Job touched her hair. You are another answered prayer. There's something about being a husband that the deepest desire of your soul is to know that my wife will be ready to meet Jesus. And then he lost everything, and then his wife says, curse God and die. He says, you are acting like a fool, to say there is no God. But yet, as we're going to see from the rest of the book of Job, that she is another answered prayer, that she stays by his side. So then, shall we accept good and not trouble? We can look at the, at the book of Job and, and look at this, at this story of, of Job and his suffering and the calamity that he goes through, but what about us? What, what about our story? Is there any other evidences that we can see in Scripture that what is it about us when we're suffering? Because what we don't see in this story, specifically in this one, we don't see Job crying out, God, stop it, restore me. Not yet. We don't see him asking those things. He simply says, shall we accept good and not trouble? And I want to go to Mark chapter 6. And I've used this, this story of Jesus and the disciples many times, but I want to look at it a little bit more specifically. In Mark chapter 6, Jesus just gets done performing miracles and preaching to multitudes of people. It says, immediately Jesus made his disciples. Okay, look, Jesus made his disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to Bethsaida. All right? Jesus, creator of the world, says, I want you, disciples, to get in this boat, and I want you to start rowing to the other side. I'll meet you on the other side. I'm going to go for a walk. I just need some quiet time. need some alone time. Leave me alone. Well, he dismissed the crowd. Verse 46, after leaving them, he went up on the mountainside to pray. Later that night, okay, so they've been in the boat for a while. So later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was ashore on land, and he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. 
Shortly before dawn, he went out to them, walking the lake, and he was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walk in the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out because they saw him and were terrified. Immediately, he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. And then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. In the Gospel of Luke, that's where we get the account of where he says, Peace, be still. And the wind and the waves obey the very words of Jesus. I highlight this because Jesus makes them get into the boat. He puts them in the boat. And it says later that night, he saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And then he says, shortly before dawn, all night long, his disciples were, were being tossed about in these waves on this lake and they weren't gaining any ground. That Jesus is standing on this mountain and he's, and he's praying and he sees his disciples struggling. Do you think at that moment, Jesus had enough power to say, hey, I see you guys struggling, peace be still. And just calm the waters for him. He could have done that there. He could have done it immediately. And he doesn't do that. He waits and he watches them struggle and suffer in the boat, and he put them there. I bring it up because I think, myself included, that anytime I'm going through suffering or calamity, I am so quick to pray to be removed from that, that when I'm in that storm, when the, the waves are crashing into the boat and I think we're gonna be flipped over, I'm so quick to pray for deliverance, 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 and I never once stop to think, maybe God put me in this boat for a reason. The same way that Jesus makes his disciples get in the boat and he watches them suffer, watches them struggle all night long, and he clearly has the power to fix it, but he chooses not to. What is it in your life? What is it in my life that I'm in the boat? These waves are hitting and we're so quick to say, I want it to, I want it to end. I want to look at the example of Jesus that while he's going through a difficult time, a turbulent time, about to suffer, about to die for your sins and my sins, this is the night he's going to be betrayed just shortly, hours before he's betrayed and arrested by the Romans and crucified, Matthew chapter 26. He's in a, in a garden praying. He says, going a little farther, he fell to his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. The apostle Paul says the same thing. Remove this thorn from me. I don't think there's anything wrong when you're going through suffering or calamity to pray for that thing to be removed. There's nothing wrong with that. Now we're following Jesus' example, but he doesn't just end it there. He continues with, Yet not as I will, but as you will. And praise God that the Father answers Jesus' prayer and only answers the second half of it. He only answers the part, I will do my will. And my will is for you to suffer and to die so that we can save as many people as possible so that people will put their faith in me. And so God answers Jesus' prayer by sending him to the cross for our sins. Again, the last little portion of poetry that I want to read right now is one little flame when all is night proves that there is such a thing as light. One answered prayer when all is gone will give you hope to wait for the dawn. 
I pray that we would start to pray that way, that we would pray that your will be done if I should lose everything. That those things which I hold dear, that I prize most, were never mine. That if you remove all of those things, if we are praying the prayer that Jesus prays, of thy will be done, guess what? Our prayers will always be answered. Even in the midst of suffering, it will give us hope to wait for the dawn. It will give us a glimpse, regardless of whether we're in sickness or in health, in poverty or wealth, or as Joel puts it, in good or trouble, we can pray for God's will to be done. I read this last week, this C.S. Lewis quote from the problem of evil, excuse me, the problem of pain. He says, we can rest contentedly in our sins and our stupidities and everyone who has watched gluttons shoveling down the most exquisite foods as if they did not know what they were eating will admit that we can ignore even pleasure. In other words, I'm, I'm, I'm watching somebody commit an act of sin. And I'm, I'm watching it happen. It's a, it's a forgivable sin or excusable thing. That this, this individual is just a glutton. They worship their belly and yet we can just, ah, whatever, it's just, it is what it is. But pain, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures and speaks to us in our consciences, but he shouts in our pains. And anyone who's ever been through suffering knows what that's like. He shouts in our pains. It is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. I remember the night that my dad passed away. I'm going to talk about this more in, the, in, the, in, in a couple weeks, but there were prayers that we were praying, and the prayers were, just take them. Just take them. I'm, I'm sick of seeing them suffer. But in that pain, and even in as, a, as a horrible thing, that that prayer was answered. And it's a megaphone. He shouts in our pains. And we sat around as a family, sang hymns. Because God is good all the time. There's a hymn that we sing, and we're going to sing it in a minute. I'm really thankful for this. Just it worked out again. It's a song written by Annie Hawks called I Need Thee Every Hour. Very popular hymn. I did a little bit of research on this a couple months ago, and Annie actually, when she wrote the words to this poem, this hymn, she was in a time of joy. She was in a good place. She was on a mountaintop, if you will, and wasn't necessarily suffering. And so she wrote the poem to say, I need you every hour in joy and pain. And for her, the whole hymn was written so that she would be reminded to worship God in the good times. And about 10, 15 years after she wrote that and after it had been become very popular and very widely used and for people that were going through difficult times and suffering, her husband passed away, and she finally said, oh, now I get it. Now I get why this hymn was loved by so many people. Because all she had known was the mountaintop, and now that she was in a valley and suffering, this song became that much more real of, I need thee every hour. Whether in sickness or in health, in poverty or wealth, or in the good times or in the troubled times. So in gospel application and closing, same as last week, do you worship God because you love God or because of his blessing? 
And we said, man, I'm doing, I'm doing okay. I mean, I'm doing okay right now. If all that was taken away, if, if there was real suffering, would you still love God? And then finally, in your times of suffering, do you only pray for relief? And by only pray for relief, or do you look for the reason that you are in the midst of suffering? Again, I think we're just quick. I think we're quick to say, I want out. I want out of the boat. Stop it. Stop the wind. I know you can, God, so do it. And maybe we need to reflect and ask, why is this happening to me? And not because of some sin or something that I've done and that's God's punishing me. I don't mean that. Why is this thing happening? But why am I going through this? What can I learn? We're going to have communion like we do every week. And uh, the prayer team will be in the back. If, if there's uh, something you'd like to be prayed for or prayed about, uh, please avail yourself of, of that ministry. We're going to partake of these elements and we're going to have bread that represents the body of Christ that was broken for our sins. An answer to prayer of thy will be done. We're going to drink the juice that represents the blood of Christ that was shed for our sins to absorb the wrath of God so that we don't have to. An answered prayer. So as we sing this hymn of I need thee every hour, wherever you're at, joy or pain, good or bad, health suffering, would you recognize that we do need him? We need him every hour. All I would ask and partake of these elements is that you'd be a follower of Jesus. Just say, yes, I, I follow Jesus. I want to serve him. Then we'd, we'd love for you to partake of this meal with us as we break bread and drink juice and remember what it is that Jesus Christ did for us thousands of years ago when he died on the cross for my sins and yours and answered the greatest prayer ever spoken of thy will be done. Will you pray? Heavenly Father, God, I thank you again for our time here this morning. I thank you for the book of Job. Thank you for Job and his integrity, the suffering and the loss. And God, I, I just pray for, for clarity even, those that are going through suffering to to try to, what, why, why am I going through these different things? Or what is it? What can I learn about myself? What can I learn about you, about God? God, I pray that you'd bring some clarity. But God, there are even those moments that even if you showed up and you said exactly why they're going through the suffering, it doesn't take away the pain that they're actually going through suffering. It doesn't take away the pain that they've actually gone through loss. And so God, would you just show up? Would you be real in their lives? Would you show them that they are loved, they are cared for, that you have shown them mercy upon mercy and upon mercy, even in the midst of their suffering because of the cross, because of what your son did for our sins as he took them upon himself so that we could be free from the slavery and bondage of sin and death and hell. So God, now would you be honored and glorified as we partake of these elements, as we sing these hymns, that God, we need you every hour. And it's in Jesus' most precious name that we pray. Amen.